Luke chapter 6, verses 20 through 26. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you. For so their fathers did to the false prophets. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, family of God. I'd like to begin today by pondering verse 20. If you can look back in your bulletin, look at the text, a very simple verse. It says, and he, that's talking about Jesus, and Jesus lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said. Jesus lifted up his eyes on his disciples, then he began to speak to them. And I, I want to ponder, when Jesus lifted up on his disciples and looked out at all these people, what did he see? Last week, Jared set us up for this. Pastor Jared preached to us from the previous passage in Luke chapter 6 and told us that there is a large number of disciples at this point who have started following Jesus around from town to town, listening to his words. It's a pretty diverse group, especially given some of the norms of the time. There are men and women in the group. In chapter 8, Luke is going to tell us about those women in particular and highlight their role among this community of disciples, which was unusual for the time period. There are men and women in the group. There's a few people of means of relative wealth in the group. Uh, but most of them are what we might call the working poor. They're, work, they're working hard. They're taking care of their families. But they're in a vulnerable situation. One illness or one injury could quickly put their families in a situation where they don't know what to eat. They don't have access to basic necessities of life. Most of them are from the region of Galilee at this point. So they're Jewish people, but they're from this northern region of Galilee, which was sort of on the border between Jewish and Gentile culture, which means that these are people who were pretty low on the social totem pole, both for Jews and for Romans and for Greeks, for that matter. They live in several overlapping cultures and they were not necessarily the bottom of the social ladder, but they were maybe like two rungs up from the bottom of the social ladder in terms of how the Jew, Jewish community would view them, in terms of how the Romans would view most of them and the Greeks. So that's that's who he's looking at. And as we read through the Gospel of Luke, it's going to be clear also that these disciples uh, are people who are filled with great spiritual aspirations and great spiritual confusion and great spiritual challenges, which is to say they're following him because they want to know God, but they're sinners like you and me. So there's some ways where we might be able to relate to them culturally and some ways 
We might not be able to, but at a deeper human level, like you and me, they're yearning for the presence of God. Anybody in here today yearning for the presence of God? And anybody recognize that you are a work in progress and you need a lot of forgiveness and grace every day? That's who Jesus is talking to. And here's what I want you to hear. Before he speaks, he looks and he sees them. He looks at them. It's not just the disciples here. Last week, Jared also alerted us to the fact he's got the 12 apostles whom he has named apostles, whom he's sending out to be leaders in the early Christian community, the wider group of disciples. But there's also some crowds of people who we might call spiritual seekers. They're not yet committed disciples of Jesus, but they're listening in. But right now, Jesus wants them all to hear, but his attention is fixed on his disciples. He's really talking to those who have already made the decision to follow Jesus, but he wants the others to listen in as they're counting the cost and considering, well, I follow Jesus. So again, this might relate to us. Some of you in this room have committed to follow Jesus. You say, I'm a Christian. I want to follow Jesus, whatever the cost. He's talking to you. But also there's people in this room who you're spiritually seeking, trying to decide if you want to follow Jesus. He wants you to listen in and hear because he's inviting you into this discipleship community. And he looks up, looks at his disciples. And and I want to ask you to do a little thing right now. I want to ask you just to visualize Jesus. He's come down from the mountain where he prayed all night and then chose his 12 apostles. He comes down to the plain, to a flat space. I want you to picture his eyes as he looks out at his disciples. And because of what we know of Jesus, we can know he's looking at them with love. He sees them. And church family, he sees you. He sees you as a group. He sees us as a group. But he sees you as an individual. He knows you with all your potential and all your weakness. All your holy spiritual aspirations and all your sins. And he looks at you with love. And from that place of seeing you and knowing you, he speaks words of love for the good of your soul. And now we got to ask, what does he say? What does Jesus say? First, he says four times, blessed are you. Everybody say, blessed are you. And then he says four times, woe to you. Everybody say, woe to you. We need to think about what those words mean. Blessed are you. Woe to you. When Jesus says to his disciples, blessed are you, he's saying, God's favor is on you. Your father delights to give you joy and abundant life. Fear not, little flock. It's your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. He's looking at them with love. He's encouraging them. And as you'll notice, this word of blessing, God has blessed you. God's favor is on you. God's going to give you his life is is especially future oriented. In other words, most of all, Jesus is trying to help his disciples understand that they are going to need to learn how to live by hope. So hope is one of our key words today. Everybody say hope. He's saying to his disciples, you can live by hope because I and my father have good things planned for your 
future. You will be satisfied. You will laugh. You have a good future waiting for you. And I want us to really let that concept of hope sink in for a second. The church of Jesus Christ is a community of hope. Disciples of Jesus are a people of hope. Redemption Church, we are a community of hope. Everybody say hope. To live by hope does not mean we think everything's pretty great. It's not the same thing as being an optimist. I mean, maybe the glass is half empty, maybe it isn't half empty, I don't know, but that's not what Jesus is talking about right here. Actually, to live by hope means, among other things, that we don't think the present is good enough. That's important to understand. It's actually at the heart of what Jesus is saying here. The idea of hope carries with it a certain dissatisfaction or critique of the present state of affairs. The world as it is right now is not okay. The status quo is not acceptable. If it was, we wouldn't need to live by hope. To live by hope is to be people who are expecting satisfaction to be deferred and delayed. And as a matter of fact, as we look closely at the difference between the two groups Jesus is addressing, one to whom he says, blessed are you, and one to whom he says, woe to you. One of the main differences is this, the group that he says, woe to you, is people that are looking for their satisfaction right now. They're living for the the present gratification, everything this world has to offer. And he's saying to the disciples, no, 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 we live by hope. In other words, lament, which names and grieves for the brokenness of the current state of affairs, is deeply connected to hope. You can't really hope without lament, but in the Bible, we definitely don't want to lament without hope. According to Scripture, they go together. When Christian theologians reflect on this theme of hope, and Christian preachers and spiritual writers throughout the ages, they often associate the theme of hope with the image of somebody going on a spiritual journey or a spiritual pilgrimage. They're traveling on the way to a place of rest and joy that is in the future. Anybody read The Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan? I see that hand. Okay, a few of you have. A few of us have. Here's the idea, as Hebrew says it, here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. And Psalm 84 says, blessed are those in whose heart are the highways to Zion, meaning they know we're not in heaven yet. We haven't reached the new creation yet, but in my soul is a journey, is a path, it's a highway. I'm on the way. So to, to be a disciple is to be a person of hope. To be a community of disciples is to be a community of hope, which means we're on a journey, we're on a pilgrimage, going to some good place in the future, but we haven't arrived yet. So everybody say, we're on the way. But we travel on this journey, knowing the journey is going to be hard. There's going to be difficulty, stuff like weeping, and hunger, reviling and rejection and poverty. There's going to be difficulty along the way, but we travel with confident joy because hope And scripture is not wishful thinking. Hope is rooted in the promises of God, which are sure. 
we just left a few of us youth Sunday school and Jordan Hutchings, who leads our youth discipleship team, did a great job of teaching God's word to us. But we looked at Hebrews that talked about hope as an anchor for the soul. And we talked to those youth about, hey, if you're in a ship, you don't always necessarily need an anchor. And there's a storm, you need an anchor. Because if there's a storm, you don't have an anchor, you're going to get blown way off course, blown around. You may hit some rocks. And the scripture says hope is an anchor for the soul so that we don't get blown way off course and our ship doesn't sink in the storms of life. Rather, we learn to be steadfast. And the steadfastness is because these blessings of Jesus are promises. There's another key word today. Everybody say promises. And the thing about the promises of Jesus is they never fail. Every word of Jesus proves true. Jesus says, blessed are you. And then he says, woe to you four times. Woe to you. Woe to you. Woe to you. Woe to you. What does that mean? Woe to you means you are in serious danger. It means be warned. It means be careful because if you persist on the path that you are currently walking, there's bad things ahead of you. Destruction awaits. It often means God is displeased with your rebellion. The coming of the kingdom of God is the coming of God's grace and judgment to heal the world and set all things right. So Jesus is here beginning this discipleship process to train his followers by giving great promises of the gospel and great warnings. For God to come set the world right means everything needs to get turned upside down. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. It's a word of warning. Blessed are you means God is pleased with you. God has a good future for you. Woe to you means watch out, be careful, be warned. If you keep going down this path, you face judgment and destruction. And and here's what I want us to understand from the beginning today. Both sets of words flow from a heart of love. Jesus looked at them and Jesus looks at us. Picture his eyes. The eyes of Jesus see you. He loves you. And from a heart of love, he preaches blessings. And from a heart of love, he preaches woes. The blessings are meant to encourage us with the good news of God's grace. All these promises are not based on how good the disciples are going to do. These promises are based on the fact that Jesus knows he's about to die on the cross for these people and rise again. When Jesus looks at the, cro- at the crowd, when he looks at the disciples and sees them, he loves them enough to die for them. In fact, that is his plan. And so he's speaking to them now about his grace. The words of blessing are like water to thirsty souls. The words of warning are more like fire than water. They're more like a sword that pierces our hearts. But these words are also words of love. Because Jesus is speaking to a world that is filled with many people on a path of self-destruction. And the Bible says in Ezekiel 33, 11, that God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. He's saying, come back, come back. I want to give you life. It's an invitation to repentance and forgiveness 
and healing. But what I want you to hear, both the blessings and the woes flow from a heart of love. And if we want to take Jesus seriously, we need to take both sets of words seriously. One set of words is popular, the other isn't. But church, do we want to take Jesus seriously? Amen. So we need to take both set of words seriously, which means probably all of us ought to leave here feeling comforted, encouraged, challenged, convicted, warned, and then comforted and encouraged again. Now let's pay attention to the specifics. Who does Jesus pronounce blessed? And who does Jesus warn? Who does he pronounce blessed? Verse 20. Blessed are you who are poor. Verse 21. Blessed are you who are hungry now. Verse 21 again. Blessed are you who weep now. Verse 22. Blessed are you when people hate you. When they exclude you. And revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. In other words, blessed are you when people reject you because of your relationship with Jesus. All right, let's let's take a little poll. Who feels great when you get rejected? Nobody. No hands that time. Who loves being totally broke, not knowing where tomorrow's bread is coming from? So you can see already, this is one of many situations in which we've got to choose whether the words of Jesus are real or whether my intuitive reaction to the universe are real. The words of Jesus come to us as a blessing and encouragement and a challenge today. Who does he warn? Those who are rich. Verse 24. I'll just go ahead and throw this in here right now. One of the questions I was thinking about this week is, who's rich? Rich and poor are relative terms, aren't they? Rich and poor are relative terms. And, um, you know, if we got a steady place to live, some kind of consistent food in our house, most of the world already thinks we're rich, right? Because I live on the south side, I know some people in other parts of town that think I'm poor, but I, I've also had friends visit my house from other parts of the world who know that I'm rich. I got a house. My family has two cars. You can fit a lot more people in my house than the eight people who do live there. Who's rich? Who's poor? Most of us here experience blessings from God, we enjoy resources such that almost everybody who was in Jesus' audience initially, not everybody, there were actually some rich, rich people that we would think were rich in his audience, I think. But almost everybody who's listening to him would have thought, if they saw how we live, they would have thought, those people are rich. So if we ask the question, who's rich, we should probably not try and squirm out from under the, the warning and the challenge Jesus is saying to us here. Who does he warn? Those who are full now, verse 25. Who does he warn? Those who laugh now. Question. We're going to think about this and meditate on it forever. What do you think? Is God anti-laughter? Y'all laughing right now, a bunch of sinners up in here. 
No, I don't think God's anti-laughter. I think in some of these cases, the key word is actually now. Are we living to gratify ourselves right now? Or are we living by hope? That's a challenging word, though. Who does he warn? You, when all people speak well of you. Verse 25, or verse 26, rather. We've got to say this is the opposite of how the world thinks, isn't it? And when I say it's the opposite of how the world thinks, I don't just mean some like confused, pagan, secular, whatever, blah, 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 people out there. I mean, for Jesus' devoutly Jewish audience, they've read Deuteronomy, which is the word of God. They've read Proverbs, which is the word of God. And, And many parts of the scripture will talk about wealth as a blessing from God and a tool we can use to bless other people. And yet Jesus is saying something radically challenging. And many of us in here today assume when everybody thinks, speaks well of us and encourages us and we have a great reputation and life is going well and we've got all the things that we need, that means I'm blessed. And many of us assume that if I'm really struggling and I can't make ends meet and everybody's criticizing me and talking bad about me and nobody understands me and I'm crying myself to sleep at night, that means I'm not blessed and accepted by God. And Jesus just immediately comes and says, you got it all wrong. That's challenging. This is the opposite of the way the world thinks, which means becoming a follower of Jesus means learning to see the world, life, God, ourselves in a radically new way. Becoming a follower of Jesus means learning to see everything in a very new way. Let me make a few overall comments about this list of blessings and woes. Before we take a second just to slowly read the individual verses. Here's a couple overall comments. I'd encourage you to jot these down, ponder them, think about them this week. The first overall comment. This this opening section of Jesus' famous Sermon on the Plain makes it very clear that a great reversal is coming. The kingdom of God is at hand, and that means everything's about to get turned upside down. Much that is high and exalted in the world is about to be brought low. Much that is low and despised in the world is about to be lifted up. God is going to comfort millions of hurting people all over the world. And many who are very comfortable and complacent are about to face God's judgment. The kingdom of God is going to heal the world by turning things upside down. And specifically... The life of Jesus, the death of Jesus on the cross for our sins, the resurrection of Jesus, his ascension, him sitting down at his father's right hand on a throne, him sending the Holy Spirit and then his second coming for which we still wait. All that stuff Jesus is doing is about to change everything and turn the whole world upside down. And the expectation that God is doing a new thing in Jesus is what sets the framework for everything that we read here. Second overall observation here is that one of the things Bible scholars argue about when they read Luke 6 is this. When Jesus talks about the poor and the mourning and so on, is he talking in a metaphorical, spiritual sense? Or is he talking in a very literal and material sense? In other words, does this mean the the poor in spirit 
Or does this just mean the poor? And that's a good question. And what I would suggest in, in the light of the context of Luke's and so many other things the New Testament says, the answer is Jesus talked about this. The answer to the question is Jesus talking in a spiritual metaphorical sense or in a literal material sense is yes. He's doing both. To take this in a spiritual metaphorical sense means that first list is basically saying blessed are the humble who recognize their desperate need for God's grace and are dependent on God, trusting in him alone. Warning to the self-satisfied, to the independent, to those who think they're better than others and judge others. That's how Jesus says this in, in Matthew 5. You remember, he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. But these, also, these verses also can and should be read also in a literal way. Part of what Jesus is doing is adding a very radical statement to the very rich and nuanced and variegated witness of the Holy Scriptures to the way that we think about prosperity and suffering in the human life. Here's the truth. Wealth can be a blessing from God. And it can be a tool that we use for righteousness to bless other people. But if you look at the teaching of Jesus, God incarnate, that's really not what he emphasizes during his earthly ministry. What he emphasizes is that the pursuit of wealth is one of the most deadly temptations in the human life. And that sometimes being wealthy is a sign that we already have deeply disordered priorities. That's real talk, isn't it? So if you're willing to entertain my hypothesis that if we ask the question, most of us in here, are we rich or poor? Some of us is relative terms. Some of us do face some significant financial strains in this room, and we don't want to minimize that. But also, most of us can't wiggle out of the reality that most people in the history of the world and most people in the world today think that we're wealthy. So... As we think about that, we, we want to listen to the Bible's whole witness on these issues. Not that wealth and poverty is the only thing here, but it does set the tone for these lists. And as we listen to the, the promises and the warnings, we want to have a, a nuanced biblical approach, but we also want to let the words of Jesus have their full sharp edge for us today. Anybody want to wriggle out from the words of Jesus or do you want to sit under them and let them, him heal us? Which one do you want to do? I'll just let you answer that to God. You don't have to tell me right now. Hey, I, I do want to give you two verses to look at. I'm going to read them real quick. You can flip with me if you want to in the Bible. If you want to think about in the New Testament, the followers of Jesus, apostles of Jesus, how do they talk positively and negatively about wealth? Let me just give you two passages to look at this week to help you as you're hearing Jesus. First, let me give you one from Paul in which he gives a relatively positive take on the fact that there are people in the Christian community whom God has blessed with wealth, and he wants them to use that for his purposes. By the way, we can also note in Luke's gospel, he started by dedicating this gospel to Theophilus, who was probably a wealthy patron of his ministry. And in chapter 8, he's going to give shout-outs to some wealthy women. He says they're wealthy women who traveled with Jesus, supporting his ministry. So is there a place for people whom God has blessed with riches in the Christian community? Of course. 
uh, 1 Timothy 6, verses 17 through 19. It's a positive statement, but as you'll hear, it does come with some warnings and some cautions. 1 Timothy 6, 17 through 19 says this. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty. That's one of the temptations, isn't it? I sat down this week with a friend. Um, I'm not going to get any details here, but has given some of the most significant financial support to kingdom of God stuff of anybody I've ever met or known to known. And when I sat down and talked to him, what he was talking about is the incredible spiritual dangers that come with the blessing of wealth. And that everybody who talks to him when they realize who he is immediately starts treating him differently and deferring to him and giving him power and status. And that that's dangerous to his soul. Now, I'm thankful for this brother, for all he does for the kingdom of God. But he was just being real with me. And, and so 1 Timothy 6, starting verse 17, says, As for the rich in the present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God. You see here that the whole issue is hope in God. Don't hope in riches, hope in God. I tell you, this is all about hope. Everybody say, hope in God. But they're hoping God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. So is it okay to enjoy God's blessings? Do we need to feel ashamed of that? No, but we do need to put our hope in the right place. And then verse 18 says, they are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Which means if God gives you Great wealth. And there's some of you in this room that maybe God has given you that. I don't want you to be ashamed, but I do want you to hear, hey, there's there's spiritual dangers. There's temptations that come with that. Hope in God, not your wealth. Enjoy what he's given you, but especially recognize it's a tool he's given you to bless people and advance his kingdom. And in Luke 12, 31, he's going to say, sell your possessions and give to the needy, which is to say all of us should be doing what George Mueller used to do. George Mueller was a great missions leader. And uh, started orphanages, Bible societies, great preacher. But his wife said that there was a certain look in his eyes that whenever she saw him with this look, she knew that he was scheming about how they could live on less so they could give away more. As looks on your eyes go, that's not a bad one. And that, that's a challenge to us. So there's First Timothy 6 saying like the woman of Luke 8 verse 3, there's a place in the Christian community for wealthy people, and but but he's just saying recognize the challenges and the opportunities that go together. Now, if you want a fiery example of the kind of warning I'm talking about, Jesus had a little brother named James who did not believe in him during his lifetime, but after his resurrection, got filled with the Holy Spirit, and he was like, "My big brother was God," and he became one of the three great leaders of the early church in Jerusalem that was birthed by the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, and he had some really fiery stuff to say about this. If you want to be challenged, just just go to James chapter five, verse one through six. I'm just going to read it. It says, come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. You hear the last days? What he's saying is the kingdom of God is coming now to turn everything upside down. And we've got to live in the light of that reality. He goes on and says, behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters 
have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Now, that's a fiery word, isn't it? That's a challenge to any of us. This is a challenging word, church. Jesus is looking at us with love, though. Everybody turn to your neighbor. We need to breathe in deep. Everybody turn to your neighbor and say, Jesus loves you. The blessings he gives here are encouragements. They're water for thirsty souls. The challenges he gives here, I would be unfaithful to Christ if I tried to mute them. But they come from love, too. He's warning us. He's calling us to watch our hearts. Now, I'm going to be done here in just a minute. But before I conclude, I just want to read through these one more time, slowly. Can you follow along with me? I'm just going to read slow and make a few observations as I go. These four blessings or promises of God, the four woes or warning, both come from a heart of love. The one who loved us enough to die for us is inviting us in deeper into his presence. Starting in verse 20. Blessed are you who are poor. For yours is the kingdom of God. If you're here today and you've really been struggling and you think maybe God is mad at me, maybe he's punished me. Jesus is saying to his disciples, hey, being poor is a normal part of the discipleship calling. Suffering and struggling is a normal part, but God's kingdom is yours. You will reign with Jesus and new creation. And at that, if, if any of us, anywhere in the world saw us now, we'd be like, that's a rich guy. Because the abundance of God's life will be a joying in the presence of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now. For you shall be satisfied. Some of us know what it's like to be physically hungry when food stamps run out. Jesus is saying, I got you. I'm going to take care of you forever. All of us know what it's like to be hungry in one way or another. Hungry for love. Hungry for relationship. Loneliness is a symptom of life east of Eden. Everybody's lonely till Jesus comes back. We're longing for an intimacy that we will experience in the presence of God. We know what that's like, hunger for love. We know what it's like to be hungry, to have a soul that's set right. Anybody tired of battling sin? Anybody tired of the brokenness and injustice in the world? Hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Jesus says, you will be satisfied. When you get to heaven, when you're with Jesus in the new creation, no complaints. All of the deepest and truest yearnings of your soul will be abundantly satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now. Man, this week I was just thinking about a lot of things. I was thinking about members of this congregation whose families are going through painful stuff right now. I know you weep when you talk to the Lord about it. I know there's people in here who are grieving. Loved ones lost. 
know there's a lot of people in here who've just felt like a lot of your life has been limping since trauma inflicted on you when you were a kid, that you didn't do anything to cause that to happen. And maybe you've made some sinful choices that have increased that trauma, but, but that's, it all started when somebody did something to you that was not your choice. You know about weeping. You probably also know about a sorrow that you can't even get the tears to come out. Just a pain, deadness of soul. I'm, I just know there's people that are in that place. Jesus sees you with love. He died on the cross so that you can be forgiven. He rose again so that you can rise. And listen to this promise of Jesus. This is a great promise. When I am done... You will laugh. You won't be able to hold in the joy. When all your wounds are healed, you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so there fathers did to the prophets people misunderstand you people reject you listen i know sometimes the american church we got kind of like a martyr complex even if nobody's martyring us so i don't want to exaggerate this but it is the case that sometimes people are going to look at you sideways or treat you bad and it hurts your feelings and some of us have faced opposition that's much more serious than that for our faith and jesus says the world may scoff at you it may mock you it may reject you some of you have faced serious rejection by family and others But here's what it's saying. God will vindicate you. And when Jesus returns, he's going to say, that's my child. He's going to say to you privately, well done, good and faithful servant. But before all the holy angels and all the saints, that's my child. That's what he's going to say. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. I already read James. I just thought of Ecclesiastes this week as I was meditating on this verse. If I'm living to gratify myself here and now, what Jesus is saying is maybe you'll get everything you're living for and it will still leave you empty. That's what the word means. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. If, if everything I'm doing right now is just trying to satisfy my longings right now and make me happy, it's just saying, listen, if you're running away from God, trying to satisfy your soul. It's not, it's not just that you'll never get what you want. You might get what you want and still be empty. So Jesus is saying, come back. Don't dig for yourself broken cisterns that can never hold water. Come to God, the fountain of living water. And let him satisfy you. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Listen, saints, if we can look around at the world and our own souls and feel like everything is great, we got a problem. we got a problem. Jesus is saying, if you're just coasting through life, complacent with pain and lostness and injustice all around you, go down that path. Come back. Let me show you a better way. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. This one hit my soul this week because I'm a, can I have a vulnerable pastoral confessional moment up here? If you don't want it, you can't stop me anyway. I got the mic. Listen, there is in my soul a deep longing for God's approval. I really want to hear 
Jesus say, well done, good and faithful servant. Is that me preaching in the back? Facebook? Okay. Sorry, I got distracted by my voice back there. There is in my soul a longing for God's approval, but there is also a desire. Can I be real? Maybe some of you can relate. I want people to like me. Anybody else been there? I want people to approve of me. I want people to respect me. And uh, this is a challenge, but actually it came, it felt like freedom this week to really meditate on that verse. Because it's saying is, listen, people are mostly wrong. <laughs> That's what Jesus is saying. When you're worried about what people think about you, just don't stress because they thought the false prophets were great. They killed Jesus. So if you're living for other people's approval, Jesus is saying, just don't go that way. Just don't go that way. Let me show you a better way. Live for your father. Live for your father. All right, church, I want to end today by calling you back where we started to verse 20. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, and can I, can I ask you again to picture the eyes of Jesus looking at you with love? He sees you. He knows you. He loves you. This Jesus loves you enough to die on the cross for your sins and rise again. So that anybody who believes in him can be forgiven and have eternal life in his presence. And the gospel of grace says that when we trust in Jesus, he forgives our sins. He adopts us into his family and he teaches us to live as people of hope, forsaking the dead ways of the past and walking in the living ways of freedom that God has called us to. And this passage is all about that. Jesus is speaking to us promises. And Jesus is speaking to us warnings. Both come from a heart of love. I need you to tell your neighbor one more time before we wrap up. Everybody turn to your neighbor and say, Jesus loves you. And before I'm going to, in a minute, I'm going to ask you to stand and I'm going to pray for you before we respond to the word by singing one more song of worship. But first, I want to give you a quiet moment. Here's what I'm going to ask you to do. Get out your pen or your phone or whatever you need to use to make a note. And I'm going to ask you to just quietly right now, look through that list of four warnings and four promises. And ask God to show you which warning does he really want to challenge you with today and which promise does he really want to comfort you with today. I'm going to encourage you to just pray, Holy Spirit, help me to hear the voice of Jesus. And ask him to give you one warning and one promise, which is your invitation to freedom and discipleship today. In a moment, I'll pray for you.
going to invite you to stand now. We're going to worship the Lord. The worship team is going to come up now and get ready to lead us in one more song. But I want to pray for you. As God is speaking to you, helping you work through things that sometimes we can't really work it through until we just praise in God. Amen. But even as we sing, the Holy Spirit is going to bring clarity to you. Hey, I think it's whenever we hear a challenging word for Jesus, I think it's just good to remind us of the difference between God's conviction and the devil's condemnation. Okay, so right now, if you feel challenged, here's what the devil wants to say. Hey, you've got this thing that's wrong in your life, and therefore, you're bad, and God doesn't love you, and there's no hope for you. Now, the first part of that might have been true, but all the rest of the stuff was false. And what God wants to say is, hey, there's this thing in your life that's a problem, but that's not who you are. You're my child, and I love you, and I'm calling you out of darkness into light. I died on the cross for you. I have fully accepted you. You don't have to get your hopes all sorted out. Anybody, when you pray to the Holy Spirit, say, no adjustments needed. Your hopes are already sorted out perfectly. Anybody feel like God was touching your heart in some areas that you need to get your hopes sorted out? Okay. While we're in the process of getting our hopes sorted out, we don't have to wait to be sorted out before God loves us. Amen. He already accepts us in Christ. So as we get ready to worship him, I want you to remember that. And let me say a word of prayer for you before we sing. Our Father, I've been standing here trying to preach your word, but I feel desperately my my need just to continue to be on my face before Jesus hearing this word. And we thank you that in Christ Jesus, there's no condemnation. We thank you that... You are not a God who says we have to get our hearts all sorted out before you accept us, but meet us in the midst of our sin and brokenness and forgive us by grace. I pray that your Holy Spirit would be awakening faith and true hope right now. Lord, where we're seeking immediate gratification or putting our hope in the wrong things, would you help us by grace to fix our gaze on Jesus alone? Help us not to try and mute or water down your word, but let the radical nature of what the Bible says about the kingdom of God come to have a home in our souls in a way that makes us radically free. Help us even now as we sing that the Holy Spirit would help us to sing words of truth from the heart in a spirit of truth. We want to be careful to give you glory for all that you're doing among us. In Jesus' name we pray.